Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Lots of big stories breaking this morning. We are taking a look at the very latest out of Ukraine and some new pretty stunning comments from Biden uh, again on the subject of Taiwan. He said unequivocally the U.S. would commit troops to defend Taiwan in the event that they were attacked. And the White House again walked it back. Um, this has happened this several times at yeah. this point, and it continues to be extremely distressing. Also, new questions about whether, if Democrats hold on to the House, whether Pelosi will continue to be the Speaker of the House or whether she will remain the leader of the Democratic Party in the House if they uh, lose control. So that is very interesting. We have some new polling we want to break down for you that is interesting with regards to the midterms and also in terms of the uh, ongoing realignments between the two parties stunningly wrong reporting mm. from the New York Times about this uh, Patagonia donation and specifically the tax treatment of it. They went out of their way to say this was totally different from this other massive political gift that happened to come from a right-wing billionaire. Well, it turns out, actually, they did it in almost exactly the same manner and yes. got caught just completely— get, I mean, forget about the bias. Like, they just got it wrong. So we'll break all of that down for you. And CNN— our friends over there making some very big moves, reshuffling their lineup. Don Lemon getting kicked off of his primetime show, getting <laughs> moved to the morning. 
swearing that it's definitely not a demotion. We'll get into it. We'll talk about all yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, and we also have an uh, update from Sagar on TikTok, update from me on uh, the rail strike. Was it averted? Are we still facing a showdown? And all of that. But before we get to that... We were in Atlanta over the weekend. We had an incredible time. Um, if we seem a little slow and a little tired this yeah. morning, it's because we are. I don't I'm still know. Still a little beat up. I don't know how these live show people. I don't. Do need, I really this don't. Tough, it it's a tough so, game. It takes so much yeah. out of you. Um, but we had a truly wonderful time. It was great to just feel the energy of mm-hmm. all these people in the room and I mean, interact just, with them and all. Just that. meeting the fans and meeting people and having such a great time. It was a real participatory show. Like we asked a lot of questions and we people just put were together. Super Engaged, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, we, we wanted to just make sure, you know, we the people who are at the show know this, but it was all just about thank you to the audience, to all of you who showed up for us. As that's how we were thinking about it. So from the shows from here on out, the vibe was good vibes only. Uh, everything was positive. That's something that we really wanted to program entirely in the show, not just make it a good show, but a good experience for everybody. Like while they were there with each other, people were talking, having a great time. We put together a, a little promo reel just to show you what exactly it was like uh, there in Atlanta and to show you why you should buy tickets to Chicago <laughs> and to future shows. So we're going to have links to the Chicago show in the description if you live in the vicinity. Here's a little taste of what you can expect. We wanted to start. Sagar, okay. drum roll. We finally have it's the date. It's finally happening. The date, <laughs> the announcement, the link. It's all over, people. Happening. After I've gone to war for all of you, we're coming to Atlanta. <laughs> to say this. Good evening, everybody. We have an amazing show for all of you, Atlanta. Crystal, what do we have today? So guys, we are very, very excited to be here with you this evening. We have all kinds of things planned for you. Our friends Kyle and Marshall are going to join us a little while. We love y'all. Thank you so much. And we will see you. We'll see you all next time. We'll see you on Breaking Points. I want to thank every single one of you. Thank you so much. Wow. I do not wish anyone else the curse of having to hear your own voice. But it was a great show. Uh, We had a great time. I think everybody there really enjoyed it. So we had a lot of fun segments. We learned some lessons about things we're going to turn up even more uh, during the next show. Because we asked people in the audience where they came from. Right. And of course, I mean, you had a lot of people, actually, not even that many people from Atlanta. There were way more people from outside of Atlanta. Georgia and Georgia. Georgia. Bunch of East Coast, bunch of like Midwest, bunch of West Coast. Then we started to say, okay, were there people that came from out of the country? Somebody came from Japan. Yeah, yeah. We had Japan. We had so, New Zealand. We had two Canada, from London. Two people from London. Yeah. It was wild was to awesome. me. Yeah, so awesome. yeah, the people who came from uh, New Zealand, you got a T-shirt for being yes. from the Shout farthest out to, away. Uh, yeah, that's our that's our gimmick, which is that whoever comes from the farthest away, just a T-shirt. That's the bare minimum of our gratitude. Yeah. That we can Originally, offer. the thought was yeah. we'd send him home with our like monologue. Right. But I'm like, how is he going to fly home with? Take him on the plane. It's like a curse. It's more a curse than a gift. Yeah. So we're not going to curse those again. So thank you all so so much for coming. That's why we've got Chicago. We've got the tickets down there. If you're in the Midwest vicinity, we highly recommend buying those tickets. The pace is going to be kind of like one a month. So we've got it right there. The Vic October Theater, 15. Chicago, October 15th. The tickets are on sale now for the general public. There is a link down in the description of this video. Also, uh, it Friday was not just Atlanta. 
It was CounterPoints, the launch of CounterPoints, which was awesome. They did a fantastic job. Uh, you guys really responded to it. It did really, really well for a debut show, both on podcasts and on YouTube. So we're yeah. really happy uh, with how it all turned out. I mean, send in your feedback, premium members and others, like obviously, and just... You know, we just want to thank you all so much. So many of the people who've signed up to continue to fund the expansion of things like CounterPoints, our partners, and all that. We have that discount going on right now, 10% as a CounterPoint special uh, until, I think, what is it, October 5th? Something I forget, like whatever. If you guys want to extend it, we'll extend it. But, uh, <laughs> as you see, we have very rigid corporate practices. October 5th, we've got the discount there, so you can get 10% off on your annual membership. That's the one that absolutely helps us the most in terms of cash flow, uh, planning, and all of those things. So thank you all to those who've taken advantage of it so far. It really does mean a lot. That was one of the things that was really cool about being live in Atlanta is to see how psyched people were about CounterPoints. Yeah, it got a huge, huge pop. Like, it was huge a cheer. Huge response yeah. to the launch of CounterPoints. Um, awesome. So that was exciting to see. And like you said, I watched back the show. Um, obviously, we're a little busy mm-hmm. on Friday getting ready for um, our live show, but I watched it back, and yeah, I thought they did a phenomenal job. They got great, great chemistry together, mm-hmm. very thoughtful content. And as we had said before, like their ideological differences are a little different than ours. The mm-hmm. things they focus on are a little bit different. So I really like having that yeah. added into the mix. I'm yeah, totally with you. Adds, I, adds I to the it. whole content. I thought Emily did a great job on the border thing. Also, she, that means we don't have to cover it since she already did. So I was like, that's great. I was like, thank you, Emily. <laughs> uh, that was another, you know, the other thing was they got they get to cover timely stuff. Like, there was the Trump comments. They covered it. They had right. the, you know, and that's one of my only regrets. Like, with the schedule, sometimes we have to wait a couple of days. So the audience got, you know, like an immediate take yeah. with that, which is something well, I think is important. The stuff that them. gets left the longest is things that break, like, Thursday, Friday. Because right. things that break Thursday afternoon, then we don't get a chance yeah, to cover until Monday. Monday. Right. So now we have them to, you know, cover mm-hmm. in a timely manner things that are breaking over Thursday and Friday. So I do think it, it fills a hole in terms of, you know, what we're able to provide here. So Absolutely. congrats to them. Thank you guys for the great response. Thank you to Atlanta and um, would love for you to jump on top of getting those Chicago tickets. It's now open to anyone can go out and grab the tickets. Response already has been super, super positive. So very excited about that yeah, one too. Everyone will be recovered by that. Everyone who attended, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've gotten so many amazing messages and, you know, tweets, Instagrams, like all those people are just so happy to be there. My favorite part was not even about them coming to see us, is them connecting with each other, yeah. talking, you know, having a good time. Yeah. Apparently there are people having debates in the audience with each other. Very friendly debates. It was, well, very friendly debates. Was, I love that. I mean, yeah. this was actually, this kind of blew Kyle's mind yeah. because, you know, we talk all the time about, oh, the, the audience yes. is really ideological uh-huh. diverse. It really is across the map. And in real time, we did a debate on student loan debt. I like, know. you could see the audience was 50. I mean, it was yeah, completely it was divided. 50, and like, 50. imagine how, what other <laughs> podcast no, or show no. or anything can actually bring those people together and like nothing but love in the room mm-hmm. when you have that total divide on on a like central issue right now so it was cool to see that live the like diversity a lot of the age diversity racial diversity, cool. everything i mean I loved it. across the board so um it really was it it did even though I'm tired today, it did restore me in a certain way as well to just be with everybody and reconnect with the people who, you know, the show really yeah. means something to them. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who Everyone came from out. a 90-year-old to, like, I think there was a child there. There was which, a kid there with a yeah. sign, yeah. 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 <laughs> from, like, a small child, so yeah, which love I that. might have um, curbed some of Yeah, I didn't know he was there, there was a kid there, until <laughs> afterwards. I might have curbed some of my language, Sorry, but mom and dad. it is what it is, you know? <laughs> just I guess we should put a rating, you know, whatever, in the future. So thank you all so, so much. 
All right, let's get to the show. Indeed. Ukraine. Uh, this is one of the most important things we often talk about here. There's, you know, things going on in politics, day-to-day, polling, etc. But probably the most important thing that we all try to avoid is a nuclear exchange. So anytime that there's an update or news on the nuclear front, I think that generally should be the leading thing that we start with. And that's exactly what happened. President Biden sitting down with 60 Minutes. There's a lot of stuff in the show that we'll talk about today with regards to that. But in my opinion, uh, the most important one was whenever Scott Pelley actually asked President Biden about fears that Putin was feeling embarrassed and may ramp up his military campaign in Ukraine, and especially what would the U.S. response be and the Western allied response be to any sort of chemical or nuclear or biological attack. Here's what President Biden had to say. As Ukraine succeeds on the battlefield, Vladimir Putin is becoming embarrassed and pushed into a corner. And I wonder, Mr. President, what you would say to him if he is considering using chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. Don't. 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 It will change the face of war unlike anything since World War II. And the consequences of that would be what? What would the U.S. response be? Do you think I would tell you if I knew exactly what it would be? Of course I'm not going to tell you. It'll be consequential. They'll become more of a pariah in the world than they ever have been. And depending on the extent of what they do, will determine what response would occur. It would be consequential, an important uh, line being drawn there by the president, um, and especially as things on the ground in Ukraine changing up. At the same time, though, not everything is as hawkish as some might believe. And this is always a strange thing with Biden. Uh, on the one hand, he you know, has basically shipped Ukraine almost everything that they want. We've passed like billions and billions. They want 15 more billion on top of the 40 billion that we've already sent to Ukraine. He's like nothing without Ukraine, without Ukraine first, all of that. But then behind the scenes, apparently he's having a real spat right now with Zelensky. So let's put this up there, which is that Zelensky and the Ukrainian government is making a major campaign to hawks in the U.S. media and on Congress to ship them long-range missile systems, long-range guided missile systems specifically, because Ukraine wants new options for striking Crimea. And I talked about this previously, which is that Biden, however, has concluded that it would be seen as a, quote, major provocation by the Ukrainians, and especially on behalf of the United States, if we were to specifically provide them weapons so that they could strike deeper into Crimea. And obviously the reason why that's important is that, of course, Ukraine considers Crimea part of uh, Ukraine. However, the Russians annexed it, according to them, uh, in 2014. They see it as sovereign Russian territory. So, you know, obviously it's all in the eyes of the beholder as to what exactly a provocation is or means. And apparently it seems that U.S. intel and Biden specifically see this as something that could really put push things in the wrong direction, Crystal. Yeah. So it's fascinating to kind of see Biden's own red lines as to, like, what he will test and what he won't. Yeah, and of course, we always take, you know, New York Times or any mainstream reporting with a grain of salt. Yeah, but it was a re- I mean, it was a really fascinating look at the debates that are unfolding yeah. inside of the administration and may very well have been leaked by, you know, a hawk, a general, or oh, someone. I, I, who, certainly yeah, that is the case. Who wants yeah, yeah. to try to pressure <laughs> yes, him right. and show, like, oh, you're not doing everything yes. you could do to support Ukraine. Um, Biden, according to the story, keeps telling his aides, we're trying to avoid World War III. <laughs> so <laughs> good to see that he has that in mind yeah. as a concern. Um, because the bottom line is the missiles, the longer range missiles that Ukraine is requesting right now. I mean, it's very hard to really characterize them as just defensive aid. It's very hard to avoid the implication that, you know, yes, Zelensky swears up and down, of course, he wouldn't strike inside Russia, but these would be capable of mm-hmm. striking inside of Russia. And, you know, I don't think that 
anyone can really trust that in the heat of war, if things got desperate, that there might be some escalation on that front. And even if there's not, how would Putin read this, you know, this latest escalation from us providing these longer range uh, weapons? What they said is they, they feel so far that they have succeeded at, quote, boiling the frog, meaning that if we had started out of the gates with all of the aid and the intelligence sharing and everything that we're doing in this war now, where it is effectively a proxy war and Putin is, you know, the, the conversation in Russia is very much like we are at war with the U.S. Mm-hmm. and with NATO. If we had started with all of that, it would have been much more provocative. Putin would have responded likely in a much more aggressive manner. But because we built up step by step by step without taking any huge leaps in terms of escalation, that their view is we have succeeded at boiling the frog. So that's kind of Biden's goal, at least as presented by this article. With regards to his comments on, you know, nuclear use of nuclear weapons by Russia and what would be the response— uh, Biden said something there that was interesting. He said, well, it kind of depends on what exactly they do. Mm -hmm. And what he seems to be referring to there is there is deepening concern within the administration that is Putin and the Russians, um, you know, have more losses and then he gets more desperate. And this is something we talked about from the beginning of the war, this idea of gambling for resurrection, that he may have his hand forced and take more sort of um, outrageous actions, whether it is use of what they call this tactical nukes Mm -hmm. or whether it's something like hitting supply lines or, you know, targeting uh, government buildings in Kyiv. But what they're concerned about is that he might detonate some sort of nuclear weapon in, not in Ukraine, but like a test. And so then when he says, you know, it kind of depends on what he, what Putin ultimately does, those are the sorts of scenarios that they're thinking through. It sort of reminds me of before Russia invaded Ukraine. Remember, we used to joke about Biden was like, well, maybe if Putin does like the just the tip invasion, that's kind of what he's referring to here is like the just the tip nuclear weapon detonation, which I'm not sure that such a thing is is really possible. Um, It's a kind of all or nothing scenario. So um, always important to remember what the stakes ultimately here are and how grave and how serious they are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even a nuclear test like what you're discussing would be a tremendously, uh, tremendously escalatory event. As I recall, I don't believe that Russia has like above ground tested a nuclear weapon since the days of the Soviet Union. I'm pretty sure I could be completely wrong on that. But that's part of the reason why whenever North Korea would do those, you know, nuclear tests like inside of a mountain or we yeah. would freak out. A, not only from radiation, but it's like that is just, that's exactly how we got to the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1963. And there's yeah. a reason that we all signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and all that because it was literal utter madness that was happening here. I don't know exactly what's on the table. However, with Putin, I mean, look, we should take the guy seriously. He's got his back against the corner. Uh, we have no idea exactly what he's going to do. I Obviously, domestically more precarious in Moscow than probably at any time in his presidency. And, uh, you know, he's signaling to the Ukrainians. Let's put this up there. At the most recent conference in uh, Uzbekistan in Samarkand, here's what he says, quote, Putin warns Ukraine, the war can get more serious. Uh, speaking, he said the invasion was a necessary step to prevent what he said was a Western plot to break Russia apart. And here's exactly what he said, quote, the Kiev authorities announced that they have launched and are conducting an active counteroffensive. Well, we'll see how it develops, how it ends up. 
he said with a grim and warned things can get more serious. Specifically, recently the Russian armed forces have inflicted a couple of sensitive blows. Let's assume they're a warning. If the situation continues to develop like this, the situation will be more serious. Obviously, you know, casting that. So look, I mean, there's dangerous stakes here in the war. It doesn't all necessarily stop at the conventional conflict that we're seeing right there on the ground. And all the rhetoric, I mean, yes, Biden did respond to this as a result of a question. However, I have to believe that with all of the environment kind of as it is with the New York Times discussing this, Putin saying things more serious, that the concern about this is very, very high. And actually, I also found a very interesting quote, which is Colin Call. He's a secretary of defense for policy, very close to President Biden. He used to be his foreign policy advisor. Uh, I've spoken with him a little bit in the past. He's, he gave a statement specifically to the Times, which uh, gave credence to this quote, Ukraine's success on the battlefield could cause Russia to feel backed into a corner. That is something we must remain mindful of. That is directly from the Secretary of Defense for Policy in the Pentagon, one of the most important positions in national security, and someone who I know has the absolute ear of the president and worked for him for a long time when in the Obama administration. So that gives us a little bit of a view into where they're thinking and like what exactly their thought process is right now. I mean, just ask yourself the question, are they going to just— Are they going to let themselves just lose? Or are they going to ask? Because, I mean, right now they are sustaining significant uh, battlefield losses. Obviously, we'll have an update for you on the very latest. Um, But they also are getting hurt economically. And humiliated in the eyes of the world. I mean, that probably matters more than anything. That's very true. I mean, as gas prices have fallen— All of the coverage we did earlier about how, like, the sanctions regime isn't really hurting Russia that much, that is not— the case as much anymore because as gas prices have fallen, that means they're getting a lot less into their treasury and it's becoming a lot more difficult to sustain at the same time. You know, European governments are starting to get their acts together in terms of like backstopping their own population, making so they can get through the winter. Russia has already kind of blown their wad in terms of their own economic warfare Mm -hmm. against Europe. So even on that front, things are getting increasingly difficult as well as energy prices have been consistently falling. So, um, so yeah, just ask yourself, do you think that Putin is just going to kind of stay the course even as they're being defeated um, in, you know, on a variety of fronts? And the pressure that he's getting domestically, and I think it's really important that we just continue to underscore this, isn't from the doves. It's from the hawks. Mm-hmm. It's from the people who are saying, you aren't doing enough. You aren't going far enough. We need to— strike those government buildings. We need to disrupt the supply lines. We need to have uh, full-scale mobilization and um, conscription so that we can have an all uh, full-on assault. So that's the pressure that's coming domestically not to end the war. So um, that's, I think, always important context to keep in mind. And let's also go to the next part here. This is very important, which is that for a while, what we were trying to understand was the relationship between China and Russia and how exactly China was looking at this conflict, whether it was positive. There does seem to have been some sort of green light from Xi Jinping, or at the very least, like he probably knew about it before it was going to happen, given their meeting at the Olympics before the invasion. At the same time, there's been speculation as to whether and how much support their Chinese would give the Russians. They're going to buy their oil, but so far have not shipped them any weapons and are becoming very uncomfortable. We're about to talk about Taiwan uh, in a little bit because it actually just showed you the tremendous political response that would come. Like Ukraine, which is, look, let's be honest, like, you know, emotional, but not as nearly economically important. If that the response there? I mean, just consider what it would mean then for the Chinese. It was very eye-opening, and also in terms of what uh, inferior military can inflict whenever you're literally fighting for your life, and especially with Western support. So, 
What happened very recently in uh, Uzbekistan at this conference where uh, both Chinese President Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi of India were, was a very stiff arm from both countries publicly towards Putin. And that is a genuinely shocking event because it just shows you how isolated Russia is, even with ostensible allies, or in the case of India, not an ally, but a non-aligned country who's like, we're in it for ourselves. They were really trying to be neutral. They're like, look, we're, you know, we're friends with the, this is what they did during the Cold War. They're like, yeah, look, we'll play with the Soviet Union, we'll play with, like, who's going to pay us more, more, which, you know, how can you blame them? Yeah. All right, let's put this up there on the screen. So from the Financial Times, uh, what a lot of people are viewing is that the Xi and Modi made clear at this conference that while they'll appear with Putin, they are, quote, not standing with Putin. Modi's comments were the most significant. Whenever he was with Putin, he specifically said in Hindi, which was then translated directly, and by the way, they know exactly what they are saying. This is the direct English translation from the Indian government. Today's era is not an era of war. He specifically told that to Putin in the bilateral meeting. That was a in diplomatic speak. That's like a backhand across the face. That's oh, yeah. like, I don't support what you're doing. I want this war to end as soon as possible. He's like, yeah, I'll take your oil at a cheap discount and I'll sit down with you because you send me a lot of oil. But don't think for a second that I'm like supporting what exactly you're doing here in Ukraine. It's very much a, I'm in this for myself. I'm not going to listen to the, some of the Western like, you know, finger wagging at me. But don't think that I'm just sitting here and supporting exactly what you're doing there. Putin was a little bit caught off guard because here's what he said. He said, we will do our best to stop this as soon as possible with co the concerns that you constantly <laughs> express, meaning also that it appears laugh. that Modi has been saying this to Putin behind the scenes but now. This was not the first time. time he was aware of right, his displeasure. Exactly, not the first time that this was made. And that also came after Putin acknowledged Xi's, quote, concerns. So what happened there is that Xi Jinping expressed, again, remember, this is very specific diplomatic language. Whenever you listen to the Chinese, they pick every single word extraordinarily carefully. They know exactly what they're doing. And with this in particular, Xi Jinping expressed, quote, concerns over the geopolitical environment and the fallout from Ukraine. So to have both those leaders say that to the face of the Russian president, who ostensibly, you know, been cast in the Western media as allies, but making very clear, they're like, yeah, look, we'll buy the oil and, you know, we're not going to go as far as the West, but we are not supporting what you're doing here. That's very important. I mean, that shows you how geopolitically isolated. They don't have real steadfast allies yeah. in the way that, you know, Axis powers and others in the past would have. So it's a big lesson. Well, and with India, I mean, it yeah. makes perfect sense because you've got two things going on. First of all, you have what were humiliating defeats for Russia right. on the battlefield. Right. So they're looking at this and they're going, oh, you are not winning. In fact, you're losing. Mm -hmm. And this looks bad for, you know, for China. China, they're like, this looks bad for us. India's like, I don't really know if I want to be on your side because this doesn't look like it's going all that well. But probably more importantly, you know, India has obviously developed incredibly rapidly and made a lot of gains in terms of their economy. But this is still a nation that has a lot of poor people who, yeah. you know, are very sensitive to food prices, fertilizer prices, all of these things. And so food prices have spiked and, you know, they are really hurting because of that. Um, so, I think they're also looking out for their interest, and it shows that they don't really buy what Putin has been trying to sell is just like, you know, the escalation in food prices, the escalation in energy prices, that this is all just because of the Western response. And India is not really buying that line. Yeah. Um, obviously, listen, we've talked about, like, the Western response is definitely part of that, but the original sin here is Russia invading Ukraine. So 
Modi not buying that. They say in this article that he didn't raise any, quote, contentious issues around Ukraine sovereignty <laughs> or territorial integrity, but rather focused on issues around the war's impact on areas such as food security, fuel, and fertilizer supplies. The increase in food costs has been devastating around the world. Yep. I mean, I really, it, like, you cannot possibly overstate the impact of the increase in grain prices, bread prices, and also fertilizer. Like, the difficulty of obtaining sufficient fertilizer really makes it difficult for these countries, not only in the short term, but for, you know, seasons and seasons to come. So, um, patients seeming to run thin with some of the major countries that have kind of, if not been allies of Russia, have been happy to sort of support them in certain ways that have been critical. Yeah. They're telling them, basically, you're kind of on borrowed time here. Right, and also for Putin to acknowledge it. I mean, he opened his speech with Xi Jinping being like, we understand your questions and concerns. You know, it's like, we will answer mm -hmm. them here at this meeting. Look, he's on the back foot, you know, even with his so-called allies in the middle of Samarkand, he's getting, not smacked around, but the, the great powers of Asia, India and China, making it clear, we are not 100% behind you. Like, just because we're not with the West does not mean we're with you. So to have that situation for him, it's a big, big problem. All right, and then let's move on to the final part here, breaking uh, out of the 60 Minutes interview that just happened last night. So, oh, first of all, yeah, the Russians, uh, in terms of what's happening on the ground, the Ukrainian offensive continues to go forward, not nearly at the same lightning pace. At the same time, however, Russia is closing in, actually on a critical city in the Ukrainian east. So this is uh, a little bit further east of where the Ukrainian offensive had been. They continue also to attack um, in that eastern region despite the setbacks and making it clear that they're going to shell the currently reoccupied positions by the Ukrainians and to make it as difficult for them to hold the territory as possible. So we'll continue to cover that. On the Biden front, though, this is very, very important news, which is that President Biden, for what, the fifth time now I, in his presidency, I want to say, or at least third major high-profile time, has said now definitively that he, as the American president, would militarily defend Taiwan with U.S. troops and then the White House changing their response uh, or changing and contradicting the president after he has said that now publicly. So let's take a listen to exactly what he said, and they'll tell you what the, what the White House said after. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. He said it as clear as day. <laughs> I don't, he I mean, said it. He said it now he three times. Not leave himself yeah. any wiggle right. room, right? Because the first response was like, in the event of, what are you right. saying, unprecedented, unprecedented attack. attack. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe you could spin that as right, like, right. oh, well, this attack is, I didn't meet the standard of unprecedented. But at the end, he's like, so let's be clear, unlike Ukraine, where we didn't commit this yes. on the ground, with Taiwan, you would. And he says flat out, yes. Right. Then the White House, once again, oh, no, policy has let's, changed. So let's reiterate ambiguity, that. Ambiguity, yeah. all of this. The but. U.S. maintains strategic, this is from the U.S., from the State Department and from the White House. Quote, the U.S. maintains strategic ambiguity on whether American forces would defend Taiwan. The Taiwan Relations Act obligates the U.S. to help equip Taiwan to defend itself. 
That's not congruent with what he said. No. This is like the whenever, two things cannot coexist. This is like whenever he did the, by God, this man cannot remain in power. And yes. the White House is like, oh, no, this is not a declaration of regime change in Russia. We're like, yeah, but he's the president. Like, he's the one who gets to decide the policy. As far as I'm concerned, President Biden now has made it very clear exactly what he's going to do in Taiwan. And the reason why this is so dangerous is mixed signals when you're dealing with nuclear powers is the exact opposite of what you want to do. Okay, you said you're going to defend Taiwan. Stick to it then. That's now the policy of the U.S. government. Now you should maintain that. And at the very least, let's get the possible deterrent effect that that may have in the future. But now if you're Xi Jinping, you're like, what is the policy? Who is running the government? Because if I go, is Biden going to do Does he even run the government? Is it the White House? Like, you know, I mean, to them too, the idea that the American president can say something and then be contradicted by his own government, that makes no sense to the Chinese. So I, they're like, I don't know what the hell is happening here. I yeah. was actually, after I read that right. piece about like Biden war and we don't want World right. War III and all this stuff, I was like, okay, like I've got some disagreements, but yeah. at least these things. And then I saw this and I was like, what the hell is going on here? I mean, this is insane. China is not Russia. Like right. the people who think we could do the same thing to China that we've done to Russia and like cut ourselves off economically. You're smoking something because the level of economic interdependence between us and China, forget about it. I mean, we did we not learn this lesson during the pandemic when it was like, oh, guess what? We don't have masks. Guess what? We don't have like enough like materials for the shots. We don't have we rely on them for everything, for gowns, for PPE, for everything. And you think that we're anywhere close to being able to have the same response with China that we have with Russia? That is bananas. Not to mention how many Americans are out there clamoring for a war with China. Like, you want to talk about World War III? Let's talk about a direct military conflict with China, which is exactly what he is floating, not just floating here, saying definitively that he is on board for. So this is insane. And then you add to it the total contradiction between what he's saying and what the White House is trying to spin and what uh, it's a disaster. My, it's a my thing is, mess. is like, look, if that's a policy, then you need to orient all U.S. forces towards that. But this might, you know, Bridge Colby, who we've had on the show, has discussed this. He's like, look, if that's actually the policy, he's like, you have to change literally everything about the U.S. military, about the U.S. alliance, about our economy. You need to prepare like all of this, because otherwise, if you stick by this policy exactly for the reasons that you're saying, you could both possibly lose a war with China and you could suffer complete economic Insane. catastrophe. Insane. I mean, it would be an economic catastrophe regardless, just because of interdependence uh, oh, with Taiwan. Absolutely. The, the other problem, too is that the spokesperson for the Chinese government, obviously they see this and they're immediately saying that this is severely jeopardizing China-U.S. relations, stability in the Taiwan Strait. China is firmly opposed to this. And another problem is that I was reading actually very recently that ever since the Pelosi visit to Taiwan, once again, the Chinese government does not believe that the U.S. government had nothing to do with that visit. They're like, I don't believe that President Biden didn't want her to go. I don't really believe it either. I don't really know it. I mean, I, I think that she is enough of a narcissist to go. I, I certainly but, don't blame yeah. China for reading it that way because I'm not convinced that the that Biden didn't greenlight it either. Right, so like, I don't know. I, anyway, if I'm the Chinese and I grew up in an authoritarian system, I'm like, I straight up just don't believe like so-called co-equal branches of government. So I get it uh, from their perspective. And at the end of the day, their perspective, you know, matters equally as much as ours does. Well, there has apparently been almost a near total diplomatic cutoff between Beijing and Washington ever since then. You know, remember when they mm. fired those missiles into around the Taiwan Strait after the Pelosi visit, there was no military deconfliction pickup by the Chinese military. So once again, like, if you want that policy, I think that's fine. 
but then you need to be 100% committed to that, and then we should at very least get the deterrent effect and prepare the U.S. armed forces and the U.S. military and the U.S. population for you know, democratic buy-in, if such thing were going to happen. But you can't just offhand say these things like you did with regime change yeah. and then also have the White House directly contradict you. It's incredibly dangerous yeah. uh, I mean, for the future. Right. I really I really think it's it's so, it's more destabilizing as if he wouldn't, if, as if he didn't just commit to it in the yeah. first place. And I mean, yeah. I don't think it's fine in any regard, even if we were like aggressively preparing our military or economy or whatever. We have taken some small, tepid steps like the CHIPS Act towards being more economically, uh, you know, independent. That's good. But we are nowhere there. And I don't want a war with China. I don't want World War III. No, That's be a disaster. the bottom line here. Um, and, you know, even the policy that we've we've sort of ramped up uh, weapons shipments to Taiwan, I mean, now they feel like, okay, we've got a playbook with what we did mm-hmm. in Ukraine, which, again, even that, thinking that is insane because China and Russia Totally different situation, but that seems to be what they're thinking. So they've ramped up weapon shipments to Taiwan. And even that is a really double-edged sword. Like, I understand the impulse of, like, let's arm them so that they are really prepared in case there is some sort of invasion. But the other thing that can happen here, which may have been what happened with Ukraine, is that China feels like, oh, since we're arming them and we're shipping them all these weapons, making it more difficult for them, it's like, we got to go now or never, or else it's going to be more difficult. Because that's what some people think happened basically with Ukraine. When we started arming them, when we started training them, there was a sense of Putin of like, I've got to act now before they get further down this road and it becomes impossible to take over this country ultimately. I think it's possible. Uh, I actually think it probably would have much less to do with us and a lot more to do with China and domestic political conditions there. I don't really think it would have as much to do with you. I mean, we've been arming the Taiwanese since like 1973. So and nothing we're doing right now is unprecedented. More what it would be is if they genuinely believe that their moment is now and they have no other choice mm-hmm. and also to stick with the 2025 plan and the 100-year anniversary of like the CCP and Mao's you know, revolution right. or whatever. I think, I think it would have a lot more to do with that. And it's also if he especially had economic collapse and they needed the population in China to be united around something. I mean, people forget this. Like the Chinese population actually does really agree with the Chinese government on Taiwan. It's an uncomfortable truth, but it's true. It's like kind of in the way that, you know, Russians believe that Ukraine really is an independent country. Most Russians believe that. Most Chinese also believe that about Taiwan. Like the idea that they don't have domestic political support on this is very, very uh, uh, misguided. So they have their own domestic political concerns. I I think that would probably fuel their thinking more than anything. Uh, Look, I, I honestly have no idea. I do think they probably had to learn something from Ukraine. I mean, they have to learn that it wouldn't be costless, that they couldn't just, quote unquote, get away with it. So anyway, I I have no idea. (laughs) Troubling. Troubling situation. We'll leave it at that. Okay, um, let's turn to the domestic political front. Uh, Some pretty interesting reporting about how Democrats are feeling about the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. Let's go ahead and put this first part up on the screen. Um, CNN was uh, the outlet that was doing the reporting here. And uh, go ahead and put this tweet up. So this is from uh, one of their reporters, Edward Isaac Dovier. He says, uh, has some of the quotes here from Democratic members of the House who basically are saying, look, if we win the House, I guess we'll give Pelosi the speakership again. But if they lose the majority, quote, the dynamics change, I think it changes the game. If you dig into this article, they interviewed more than two dozen House Democrats. That seemed to be the consensus that among most of them, that, quote, if they lose the majority, there would be overwhelming pressure 
for Pelosi to go, a prospect that Democratic sources say the House Speaker is keenly aware of. If they do hold control, it could lead to Pelosi extending her time in power. But Democrats are split about that possibility. A sizable contingent is eager for new leadership regardless of the outcome, even if she would be the heavy favorite to hold on to the gavel. Now, the thing that is always interesting to me uh, about this is that the, like, corporatists and the centrists are willing to go so much harder than the lefties. Yeah. So AOC is quoted in here, and it's very squishy. She's yeah, what like, does she say? She says, I think if we're in a minority, then I think that the desire for change will be broader, hmm. potentially within the party, but I think that desire exists. We saw and heard that desire in the last two terms that Democrats were the majority, so it really is just a question of not if people want that, but how many. Whereas you've got, you know— You've got a senior dem- another senior like corporatist Democrat here who says she has to go. No way she can stay. She doesn't have the votes. So always interesting to me that the but and part of that is that the people who challenge her from the right, like they get forgiven for it. You know, I mean, there was a, a sort of like uprising in uh, 2016, was it, yep. where it was like, okay, we might make a run at, from the right at pushing Pelosi out of power. Those people were all welcomed back in with open arms, whereas if it was a lefty challenge, then forget it. They would be, you know, uh, excised from the party and demonized as Russian traitors or whatever forever. Um, I also thought that there was an interesting quote here from Henry Cuellar, who, you know, Pelosi really went to bat for, dragged him across the finish line in his primary where he was facing a challenger to his left. And you see very clearly in this article why she was so committed to keeping him. Cuellar says, I support Pelosi. I'll support her for whatever position. That's ultimately the bottom line of in spite of the fact that he's anti-choice and pro-gun and totally at odds with her on any number of other issues that she still backed him and dragged him across the finish line because ultimately he was going to be there for her in the vote that most is most important to her. Um, so if she does go... Who would be the replacements? This is also very interesting. The two that are always floated, Hakeem Jeffries in particular, I think is the person who's floated the most, um, Democrat out of the New York area. What does he represent? Brooklyn, I think. And then you have um, Adam Schiff, who, you know, you guys know who Adam Schiff is. But in this article, they say that two of the current uh, deputies, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, are also thinking about it, which, like, if your case is Pelosi's too old, these dudes are just as old. Mm-hmm. So that's the piece. Go ahead and put that tweet back up on the screen. They say much attention on Pelosi's plans, but also Steny Hoyer has privately indicated to allies he would run for the top job if Pelosi bowed out. According to multiple Democratic sources, I don't think we're ruling out anything, Hoyer said, and Clyburn is also keeping options open. So there you go. That's the sort of state of play. Pretty yeah. interesting. I mean, and Steny Hoyer is a whopping 83 years old, uh, just so everyone He's actually older than Nancy Pelosi. I believe Clyburn is also up. That's actually what strikes me more than that. I'm like, God, do they have, is there nobody— 40, I mean, even 55, I'd take it. You know, it's like at this point, like how is there not a bench of any real leadership? I really do think that they have done themselves a tremendous disservice. We were looking, I was looking at a graph recently about average age in Congress and the, the recent spike to the 70s and 80s, especially in leadership, that's a very recent phenomenon. It really only happened in the last like 25 years. And much of it is because of Pelosi and the people around her her complete inability to let go of power. I mean, Clyburn is a very malevolent influence in politics, mm-hmm. as is Adam Schiff. I mean, none of these people they're floating are an improvement over Pelosi. In yeah. fact, several of them are actually worse. Like 
Clyburn is probably the reason Kamala Harris is vice president, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the one that, you know, kneecaps the left in the primary. Ultimately, Biden's able to win. He is a big part of the reason um, that the Democratic Party stays so closely aligned to corporate power and never, like, you know, breaks that hard and fast alliance. So the idea of him stepping in as speaker is, you know, it's— not a good one, in my yeah. opinion. None of these, as I said, is any improvement. Adam Schiff, I mean, at least with Pelosi, you got to say, like, she's, she is relatively effective at keeping the caucus in line. She's kind of politically sta- savvy and, like, strategic and tactically savvy. Like, these people, I don't think they have that level of tactical skill, and they're ideologically all terrible. So, not an improvement, in my opinion, any of this. Um, they discuss the the possibility of Pelosi either stepping aside or being pushed out on CNN. Let's take a listen to a little bit of how that went. But it is really an open question. You have this situation where we have three leaders of Democratic leadership who have been there for a very long time. And so there's a lot of interest in coming up the ranks. Any women? Any women? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are women who are in consideration for other posts, but the, the top job is probably going to not be a woman at this point. We'll see. It's too early to tell where this will go. So CNN's top concern there is, it's you like, know. Who is the woman? Wo- where is the woman? It's like, God, As if yeah. that's the thing that matters Yeah, here. apparently that's the most important thing. <laughs> not what they believe. You know, this typical, uh, anyway, there's a reason that that lady is losing her job, or at the very least, uh, losing her primetime slot on CNN, well, not, or whatever, morning show slot yes, on CNN. we're getting to that getting later to that. in the show, the CNN shakeup, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really buy that Pelosi is going to step aside. I don't either. Um, Especially if they do hold on to the majority, which I think is unlikely, but, you know, theoretically possible. I don't see any way she steps aside. And she supposedly, you know, back when she did face this, like, leadership threat before, she made a deal with them that it was like, I'm going to step aside in four years. Mm -hmm. Now it was like an unofficial deal, and no one should have ever taken her word for it. But clearly, you know, she's sort of thrown those calculations aside, so— I don't know. I I do think she has that narcissistic tendency to feel like, oh, the republic, future of the republic depends on me staying in this position and no one could possibly replace me. So I'm going to have to stay here no matter what. Um, And I also, you know, I don't think any of these potential replacements, they're all close allies of Pelosi. Mm -hmm. So are they really going to step up and, like, mount this direct challenge to her? I find it a little bit hard to believe. But it is interesting that you have, um, you know, a significant number of members right now saying that they think it's time to move on and that they think she'll be replaced. I think you're right. I Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's too much of a narcissist to actually let go. She's intimated in the past, like, maybe I'll leave, maybe I won't. She always ends up staying. I honestly think she'll just die in office. Like, I, I don't think that they, she has it in her to step to go. down. Well, at the very least, yeah, I mean, look at how much she, she just loves being fed it. All her, she's in, like, Armenia right now. You know, she loves to travel. She's always on board. The military escort plane is, like, part of the, uh, in the, you know, the actual line of succession for the U.S. government. I think she just really likes the flex of being speaker. And, you know, being minority leader in the House is not an insignificant position either. You also still have tremendous responsibility. So it wouldn't surprise me for a second if she stayed on. Yeah, me neither.
We've got some new polling about how things are shaking out for the midterms. Let's put this first um, piece up on the screen. This is from NBC News. Uh, Mark Murray tweeting here that the GOP has huge issue handling leads on the economy, crime, and border slash immigration. Dems have leads, big leads on abortion and health care. Um, and you can see the, the graph there over on the side. I mean, the biggest area where Republicans have a lead appears to be border security, but um, pretty close behind is the economy, uh, which which obviously continues to be a really important issue for people, as it always is. Um, overall, in this poll, you had a tie in terms of the generic ballot. So that's when you ask people, hey, would you rather have a Democrat or a Republican as your member of Congress? That's the generic ballot, and it came in at a tie. Now, uh, Democrats previously had a deficit on that measure, so that represents an improvement. But if they were actually going to hold on to the House, most analysts think they would have to you know, be ahead by several points on that metric just because of um, you know, the way the districts are drawn and gerrymandering and the fact that you pretty consistently have Republican support understated mm -hmm. in these polls. Interesting also, let's put this next piece on uh, the breakdown, uh, demographic breakdown of who supports the Dems and who supports the GOP in the 2022 midterms. As I said, overall, it's 46 to 46, so it's a tie. Among white voters overall, Republicans with a sizable advantage, 41 for Democrats, 54 for Republicans. Huge um, college split, so white people with a college degree, 58% backing Democrats, 38% Republicans without a college degree. Those numbers are totally flipped and even more lopsided. 31 for Democrats, 64 for Republicans. Black voters still overwhelmingly with Democrats. Democrats with a narrow lead among Latinos, 46-42. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. And there's a sizable gender gap here, too. Uh, women are backing Democrats, Democrats 53 to 40. Men are backing Republicans, 39 for Democrats, 53 for uh, Republicans. So that is kind of the overall picture that is coming out of this NBC News poll. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, whenever you're looking even more into the breakdown, in terms of what voters care about and what they also believe about the economy, it matters a lot. 63% of voters believe their income has fallen behind the cost, cost of living. 58% disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. So even though you have like that 40, 46, 46, something, and you know, during the 2020 campaign, something I would always hear from the Trump folks was, yes, you look at all that, but look at his economic numbers. And always he was either tied or slightly above Joe Biden. And so when I see this and I see the economy so heavily weighted towards Republicans, again, at 47 to 28 in terms of who you think is going to handle things better, that's just a tremendous lead that it's going to be very, very hard to decouple from. And, you know, demographics and all that other stuff aside, the one thing that we all have to deal with is prices. And whenever prices are high, as they are right now, 8.2, I think, percent inflation, highest in over 40 years, there's just going to be a price for that. I don't think there's any way to spin it, Crystal. And abortion and all that other stuff aside, structurally, like, things are looking pretty good. I mean— so we actually, down in Atlanta, we gave our predictions yes. for the midterms. Should give them away here, too. Yeah, shameless, <laughs> shameless prognostications yeah. that I'm sure will backfire and blow up in our faces, but what the hell. Um, and I think people were a little bit surprised that I did pick Republicans not only to take the House, which to me is, you know, that's an easy one to make. I think it's pretty certain just because of the advantages they have structurally that they'll probably take the House. They only need to pick up a few seats. Um, but I also, if I had to say— would still 
predict that they win the Senate. And I know that, you know, 538 and these other metrics say that uh, Democrats are very much favored to hold on to the Senate. The polling looks pretty good for them in all of the battleground states and even in some surprising places like Wisconsin and Ohio. Those ones I discount entirely. But ultimately, this is going to come down to likely very close races in states like Georgia Mm -hmm. and in states like Nevada. And they only have to net one seat. So if they win those two, which, again, the polling is extremely close on, Republicans win control of the Senate. And when I look at the economic numbers, when I look at the fact that Republicans still have an advantage in terms of how they uh, would manage the economy and a significant advantage, the economy is still the number one issue people are talking about. The economy is always the number one issue that people vote on um, election after election. Like, we always have to relearn this lesson. When you look at the fact that, yeah, Biden's approval is a little better, but it's still not good when you still have so many people saying the uh, nation is on the wrong track. And you have the historic precedent of the party in power doing poorly in this first midterm election. It's just hard for me to really believe that abortion is going to be enough to completely turn the fortunes around for Democrats. Now, is it going to be closer than expected? Yes, of course. Now they have a shot. They didn't have a shot before. Um, And it really is sort of balanced on a knife edge. But when I look at numbers like this— I do feel like it's just so hard to overcome the that economic deficit that even if you have this newly motivated, you know, women in particular, young people maybe around student loan debt, it's still a really uphill climb for Democrats to be able to overcome in a state like Georgia or a state like Nevada where the Senate will be won or lost. So we'll see how it all shakes out. It's still a long way to go before November. God knows what will happen between now and then. But um, even as Democrats have very much improved their positioning— I still think it's going to be a, a tough hill to climb. All right, co-sign all of that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's very important just to underscore like why that is such an important dynamic and all the polls, exciting ones, which are probably fake and completely wrong, just like they were in 2020. It's more of a bet on that and not uh, always just bet on the absolute, <laughs> quote-unquote, fundamental that has ruled American politics now for decades, which is yeah. it's the economy stupid. It's a joke and a meme for a reason because it literally is basically the only thing that really matters whenever people come to the ballot box. So at the same time, we had a new uh, deep dive into how Latino voters mm-hmm. are uh, feeling, what party they're identifying with at this point in time. This one came from the New York Times that did a poll just of— it was New York Times and Siena College that did like an oversample of Latino voters to dig in and get some insights here. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. They say a majority of Latino voters are out of GOP's reach. A New York Times Siena College poll found Democrats faring far worse than they have in past with Hispanic voters. But overall, the party has maintained a hold on the Latino electorate. And so what they're seeing here is obviously there has been some realignment, especially among Young, working-class Latino males, Mm -hmm. huge shift towards Republicans. Um, There is weakness for Democrats in some areas. And I think it also, I mean, the big thing you get out of this is, like, we talk about the Latino community. Like, that's a fiction. There's a, a very different picture in the South with Latino voters than in other parts of the country. So in the South, you've had more of a realignment, especially in Florida and Texas, mm-hmm. 
towards Republicans than you haven't had in other parts of the country. Um, they say that uh, Democrats have maintained a grip on the majority of, majority of Latino voters driven in part by women and the belief that Democrats remain the party of the working class. Overall, Hispanics are more likely to agree with Democrats on many issues, including immigration, gun policy, and climate, but they, and they are also more likely to see Republicans as the party of the elite and as holding extreme views. Majority of Hispanic voters, 56%, still plan to vote for Democrats this fall compared with 32% for Republicans. But again, the trouble spots are, you know, handling of the economy. Trouble spots are um, there is a sizable uh, chunk of the Latino electorate that does agree with Republicans on issues like crime and the border. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and they also, they asked about Latinx. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they found basically like, they didn't really like the term, but they were like offended by it. So anyway, that's kind of the big picture is they're trying to make the case that even though there has been some shift towards the GOP, uh, there's still a bulk of Hispanic voters that identify more with the Democrats and feel like the Democrats are still the party of the world. Yeah, class. I just still felt like it's a bit cope, which is that nobody's ever claimed that Republicans are winning the majority of Latinos. The whole yeah. point is that if it's even 55-45, like, it's actually a huge disaster because they're mm-hmm. winning it by 75-25 like five years ago. So what happened? Go and look at the margins right. well, I mean, on Obama. Compare like, this to the uh, expectations of the Democratic yes, Party right. just a few cycles back, especially when— Back in 2012, you know, all the way up through Trump's first election, when the thought was because his rhetoric was so extreme in terms of the border and immigration that you'd have a flood of Latinos in the Democratic Mm -hmm. camp. I mean, this was actually fierce all the way. Republicans were secretly very afraid of this as well. Yes, this was Mitt Mitt Romney believed this. Yeah, you're you're correct. Yeah, Yeah. and there was. Remember after 2012, this whole autopsy where you even had people like uh, Sean Hannity saying like, "Ah, we got to soften on immigration. We got to reach out to this constituency in a different way," which was also very. All around, the whole political class, the idea that you could just, that immigration was the only issue that this large and extraordinarily diverse group of voters cared about was always really, I mean, frankly, racist and incredibly uh, essentializing. So there was that mistake. And then obviously after 2016 and then in 2020, when Trump gains with this demographic, it's like, what the hell is going on here? So compare where they are now, where it's like, well, we're not doing, you know, Democrats are doing not that great, but they're still barely holding on to a majority versus the expectation that this was going to become a solid Democratic voting block the way that African Americans yeah. are. There's a very different reality that has unfolded. My, my reaction to this is Latinos, they're just like <laughs> all of us, as in they are bifurcating on uh, class lines predominantly on whether you have a four-year college degree or not. Gender exactly. lines, too. And gender, I mean, too. No, yeah. but that's that's the GOP as well. Yeah. It's the only group, once again, uh, who actually voted less as part of a demographic in 2020 were white men. Every other black man, Latino man, Indian man, uh, whatever, all went much more Republican, including women as well. So it's more like a white man felt like shame, I guess, and decided not to vote for Trump. But like, in general, gender split has always been extremely reliable on whether you vote. Like, they did that one map, right, where it's like if only women voted, every single state would have gone blue. If every only men voted and the vast majority would have gone, it's always been a major dividing line yeah. in America. Nobody likes to talk about it, but it is true. So especially when you introduce the class dynamic, I mean, once again, the be- one of the best predictors outside of gender and guns is did you go to college or not? 
shocking. It turns out Latinos are just like all of us. Yeah. And vote just like right. everybody else. Well, and the like, difference between Latinos in the South yeah. and other parts of the country was also interesting to me and also makes right. a lot of sense. I mean, in Texas, you have a lot of Latinos who've been there for generations. I mean, you know, it's a different— It's a, it's a, it's an own identity. This is, uh, you know, this has also driven me crazy. It's like you have people there in Texas that are fourth, fifth generation, um, sometimes before even, you know, the whites showed up in Texas. So they're like, yo, like, we don't, we're, like, we don't look at ourselves as Mexican. They're like, we're Texican. They're, you know, and sometimes they even, uh, there's, there's a term which is like nebulous, but it does mean something like white Hispanic. Yeah. Like where they literally consider themselves white, which is fine. I mean, you can consider yourself whatever you want, but the, they legitimately do not consider themselves and really have any real like cultural connection to like a new arrival from like Puerto Rico. Yeah. They're like, we don't really have anything in common. We have a very distinct culture. They're like, we have a deep connection to Texas, to the land. They're like, even Mexico. They're like, yeah, we know it's close by. We have, may have relatives, but like, we're very different people. Border Patrol yeah. also an important source oh, yeah. of jobs in border patrol border communities yeah. and Everyone throughout Texas. Everyone forgets this. To work for Border Patrol, you know, you have to speak Spanish. Who do you think that the best bilingual people near the border are? Most of these people are Latinos themselves. So yeah, I, it's always annoyed me like, yeah. the erasure of who a lot of these people Florida, are. you obviously have large Cuban, but also growing right. Venezuelan oh, yeah. um, population where the you know the politics, again, are very different. So anyway, that's, that's the latest breakdown. Reflects a lot of the shifts that we've seen in other polling and um, pretty interesting to dig into the, the different issues and the way it's being viewed in, uh, you know, with Hispanics across the country. Um, next piece that we wanted to get to here. So... Uh, last week, there was a big report in the New York Times. They got the scoop about how the founder of Pat- Patagonia, who's this kind of like hippie-ish guy, he was like a rock mm-hmm. climber and sort of, you know, accidentally— It always seemed like a cool dude. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not like to smear him. This right. is to smear the New York Times and yeah. tell you that they're <laughs> bad at their job. Yeah. Um, so this guy decides he's getting older uh, and he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with his company. And he ultimately decides that through a series of mechanisms I'll get into in a moment— his family's going to keep basically control of it. And it's a, it's a private company. It's not a public company. And all of the proceeds are going to be donated to this nonprofit, which is meant to flight, fight climate change um, and to support the environment. I think he cares a lot about, like, conservation of um, wild spaces and things like that as well, mm-hmm. which makes sense as his background as a rock climber. So New York Times writes up this glowing article. Again, this is nothing against this guy who I have no, you know, reason to believe that he has ill intentions here or whatever. But there was a really explicit effort to pretend that there were no tax benefits to him or the family from handling the company in this way. Go ahead and put the article up on the screen here. It says, billionaire no more, Patagonia founder gives away the company. Um, here is the technical specifics and how they describe it of how this is all happening. They say in August, the family irrevocably transferred all the company's voting stock into a newly established entity known as the Patagonia Purpose Trust. So that's the company and the voting stock goes there. Then the trust, which is going to be overseen by members of the family and their close advisors, is intended to ensure Patagonia makes good on its commitment to run a socially responsible business and to give away its profits. Um, the, the Tweenards, I think is how you say it, I don't know, donated their shares to a trust. The family will pay about $17.5 million in taxes on the gift. Then they donated the other 98% of Patagonia's common shares to a nonprofit called the Holdfast Collective. It's a 501c4, which they say allows it to make unlimited political contributions, but the family received no tax benefit for its mm. donation. 
Okay, remember that line. Then they go on to very explicitly draw a contrast with another big company gifting for political causes that they had previously covered, but that one came from a right-wing billionaire. So then they say, Barry Seed, a Republican donor, is the only other example in recent memory of a wealthy business owner who gave away his company for philanthropic and political causes, but he took a different approach in giving 100% of his company to a nonprofit, reaping an enormous personal tax windfall as he made a $1.6 billion gift to fund conservative causes, including efforts to stop action on climate change. Now, the reality is that that Republican donor, whatever you think, and I don't like the use that he is intending to put his funds to, it was the same basic structure as what the Patagonia did do. So the tax benefits that are accruing to the Republican donor are the same ones that are accruing to uh, the Patagonia founder, namely the fact that because he used this mechanism, they don't have to recognize any of the capital gains yep. on this company. So the you know appreciation value, all of that, that would be a huge tax hit. Um, that is all foregone, and they're able to transfer it over with paying like very minimal taxes. Now, it is true for both of these men, by the way, that because it's not going to a 501c3 where you could get a charitable tax deduction, it is true that they are not maximizing their tax benefits. But that's also true for the right-wing donor. So it's pretty— Pretty remarkable. And, you know, they went out of their way to get, like, quotes from people in this Patagonia article saying, like, oh, it's so amazing and it's incredible that they're not benefiting from this and all of this. Again, I don't have an issue personally with saying, like, I support the, the, right. the what this money is going to and I don't support what that money is going to. But the fact that they just got the story blatantly wrong is a real disservice to everyone. Oh, it's completely ridiculous because everyone's like, oh, this is the good. You know, it's this is exactly also just shows you why it's very dangerous to play the good billionaire, bad billionaire game. It's like, no, they actually all exploit the exact same loopholes in the tax code in order to just benefit yeah. whatever cause that they want. So once again, like you can think, yeah, it's great that he avoided taxes in order to support climate climate change stuff, but if you support that, then you also are supporting the underlying mechanism through which the right-wing billionaire gives a billion six to the Federalist Society guy. So, well, as that, as long as that loophole exists in the tax code, it is going to be used for dual, dueling political purposes, That's right. and then you have to just be okay with the fact that right-wingers exist too amongst the ultra-wealthy. Well, and here's, <laughs> here's the thing. Bloomberg yeah. actually accurately covered the story. Yeah. Um, let's put that up on the screen because I think it's important. And they go into the details and the parallels between what the Patagonia dude and mm -hmm. the other dude did and that it basically with some you know small details was the same structure and they got the same tax benefits. And in fact, this allows the Patagonia billionaire to skirt $700 million in taxes. And they had some good quotes in this article from, uh, you know, an, an analyst and expert on sort of, um, what is he, an expert in, like, taxation yeah. and billionaires, I guess. <laughs> um, but I thought he put it well. He said, we're letting people opt out of supporting all the expenses of government to do whatever they want with their money. This is a highly problematic from the point of view of democracy, and it can mean a higher tax burden for the rest of Americans. Using a 501c4 in trust lets him and his family continue to effectively control the company. And they say— if someone wanted to leave their votes behind after they die, we don't let people do that. But yes. through these organizations, they're doing something similar, and their money is so much more powerful than a single vote. So again, 
I'm not saying that these guys have like ill intent or nefarious or whatever, but the bottom line is rather than allowing their assets and their estates to be taxed when they pass, and for those massive pro- $700 billion mm-hmm. in this case, million dollars, sorry, not billion, $700 million in this case, um, to go into government coffers where there's a democratic process where we all get to have a say in terms of what this money goes towards, whether it's roads or bridges or schools or war or whatever. Um, Instead, they get to keep control over how this money ultimately is used. And we've talked a lot on the show about how, you know, the billionaires controlling these social causes and relying on the benevolent billionaire to fund your causes is ultimately very problematic and leads to all sorts of other issues. You see this with Bill Gates in the public health yeah. sector as one example. Right. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Bill Gates in public health. I mean, so many of these guys, you know, the Waltons and water rights in Montana. That's and there's right. all kinds of insanity uh, that's happening around this country. And this is exactly the issue, which is that if you want to defend this, okay, be my guest, but then just understand the exact tax mechanism, which is going to be used by everyone, every billionaire in the United States in order to dodge taxes to just basically donate to whatever cause they believe in. Also, this is the more important one to me. He's actually avoiding the 40% gift tax on if he was going to give this money to his heirs because the man is 83 years old. So his heirs now have to pay nothing. And they didn't build Patagonia, okay? They were just there along there for the ride. So now they get the social cachet of being a big spender in the Democratic Party and they don't have to pay any taxes. That's crazy. And I was reading an article this morning about the LA Times. This billionaire guy buys the LA Times. His daughter is like some crazy social justice lib and is literally making the LA Times like change its style guide language. And they don't know what to do because they're like, yeah, I mean, it's the owner's daughter. Like, oh, do we listen? And this is a huge paper like in, in Los Angeles. So, and at the time everyone hailed it. They're like, oh, Patrick, uh, I forget. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Like he's bailing out the LA Times. Like he's coming in. It was like, this is the price that we pay. Yeah. For this total control. Like, do you want that guy's daughter to be controlling the style guide for a city, the second city, largest city in America? That's nuts. Yeah. Same thing with this guy and whoever his kids are. I don't know his kids. Well, the way you you put it is really good. Like, just stay out of the business of playing the good billionaire, bad billionaire game. Just understand that all of these, mostly men, with this large amount of money— it distorts democracy. Okay, I Mackenzie mean, Bezos, though, is a good example. Oh, uh, absolutely. She, she gets all this money from this divorce. She rules left-wing wives. Yeah. She is the single largest that donor. That amount of money, yeah. given the way our system is structured, is incredibly distortive. Yes. And incredibly, you don't want to talk about thrust to democracy. Like, the fact that they can create this whole separate ecosystem that none of us has any say in whatsoever, like, that is a real threat to democracy. Mm. So, yeah, not the New York Times' finest moment in how they covered these things. And it really is funny. I encourage you to go and read the article they uh, that I think was actually a very good article written by Ken Vogel about the right-wing dude. Yes. Compare it to um, the art of the fawning, yeah. not critical at all, didn't raise any of these questions article about the Patagonia dude. Like, go and compare them side to side. The types of quotes that they got mm-hmm. on the one hand versus the other hand, and the way they presented everything, it is like the definition of propaganda. Oh, this and you is can fake. see it. This is an actual, like, one of the most perfect, glaring examples of fake news. Yeah. I think it's important that you set it up, too, because— Everybody in the left-wing media just doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. They're like, well, we support the cause. It's like, it doesn't matter. Well, you reported something that was actually factually incorrect. I actually, the yeah. person I reached out to, I yeah. don't think he would mind me saying this, yeah. but because he had done a lot of reporting on the right-wing donation, uh, David Sirota with yeah. the lever, yeah. and I was like, is this 
because this looks like the same structure. So are they just getting this wrong? And he checked in with, you know, the people that he relies on to understand the complicated tax mechanics. He's like, no, they just blatantly got it wrong. So, like, even putting, like, the biased coverage, like, this just factually incorrect the way they presented it. Pretty astonishing. Just another reminder— these people are bad at their jobs. Yeah. Bottom right. line. Exactly. It's, it's actually shocking. Speaking of people who are bad at their jobs, uh, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. There's a big shakeup going on right. over at CNN. Uh, we're covering this. So Don Lemon has officially been taken off of his, ni- his uh, nightly primetime show with his own name on it, and he's being transferred to the morning. Now, uh, I don't know how else you would describe somebody who has a show with their name on it at the most coveted time slot in television, and then moving them to a panel show with multiple co-hosts from 6 to 9 a.m., which in TV terms means that you actually have to wake up at 3.30 in the morning in order to go do your job and not describe that as demoted. However, Mr. Lemon is very, very sensitive about this. Let's put this up there. He says explicitly, I was not demoted. He's like, no, 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 no. For those who are saying, oh, he moved me out, I could have said, no, I was not demoted, none of that. This is an opportunity for to create something around me, and I get to work with two great ladies who, you know, and he basically just ends the quote right there. Turning mm. lemons into lemonade. Sorry, yeah. I couldn't resist. Turning lemons into, yeah, there's a lot, there's so many puns that we can make here. I, I, I don't know, maybe he's got tears in his eyes because he's got, I'm, I'm not going to keep going. All right, so, but Crystal, I don't think there is a way to describe this as obviously a demotion, Clearly also, also it just shows you, once again, you know, for all, I do support Chris Licht, like firing Brian Seltzer and all this, but they fundamentally lack imagination. They <laughs> describe this as a, quote, mass appeal play. Yes, what? let's take the lowest rated and frankly dumbest man on television and put him in the morning. That'll appeal to the masses. And then we'll put a blonde woman right next to him because that'll soften him up. Like, what? What, guess, are you, what are you what are you thinking here? Funny to me right. is I they are describing this. The, the thing that was strange to me is like they're describing this as big game changer. Yeah, is it, what? Like, no, it's not. It's the yeah. same type of people. Like all of these CNN yes. characters are very plug and play. Like right. they're all very similar. And so, oh, I took this blonde woman and man combo right. and I switched it right. for a different blonde woman and man combo and threw in Caitlin Collins. Totally. It's like, that's not a game changer. That's just like a regurgitation of a very similar thing that you've been doing. I mean, look, we'll see what it looks like when it actually comes to light of day. But it, I was surprised at the lack of ambition <laughs> that this represented, I guess well, is what I would say. Because Chris Licht comes from Morning TV is kind of his yeah, thing. he created Morning Joe. Yeah, I'll create right. Morning Joe. What did he also, CBS, I yeah. think. Their morning show. Yeah, they're he the helped. lowest rated one, so you know. Yeah. I'm just saying. And, uh, yeah. and that was actually, yeah. um, but I think the last element that we have the here Puck for News. Puck News. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, so this was when life gives you lemon, lol. Um, this was an interesting analysis by Dylan Byers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. He said, listen, the audience that watches cable news is growing older and it's growing smaller. Zucker, who's now, of course, ousted, may have felt confident he could have fought that trend, but Licht's strategy is to embrace it. So basically what he's arguing here, Dylan Byers, is that he's not, even though they say this is a mass appeal play, mm-hmm. he's really not going for the mass appeal play. He is trying to appeal to the, you know, the normies that are still watching right. cable news, like the older retirees who are still watching cable news, is trying to pare back expenses and make it less costly 
and basically, you know, make it financially viable in a future where ratings are not coming back. So I thought that was an interesting insight into potentially what he is ultimately thinking here. That's smart. Uh, that could be a smart way to look at it. I mean, I think that the other one is that Lemon was a huge pain in the ass. He needed to kind of, quote, get rid of him, put him in a less high-profile role. He also seems to have a real thing against Brianna Keeler, um, which they talk a lot about in that piece, who we played earlier, the woman thing. I don't blame him. I also find her very unpleasant to watch, so I guess I also would want to like, get rid of her in the morning. Right, but it's not like Poppy Harlow is— Poppy Harlow? That's, exactly. I don't know. That's why I'm like, to me. I don't know where this is all coming from. I mean, look, Caitlin's actually quite good at her job. She's going to be like a roving correspondent type. I think she'll be fine at that. I mean, that's that's good. Uh, moving on from the White House. So, you know, she'll probably just be traveling a lot, like the hurricane person, you know, I'm here on whatever. That's a fine gig. But at the end of the day, like what they point to is, and he actually says this, he's like, well, Chris Licht is going for the competition of muted screens in airports yeah. and here on K Street. I couldn't find a better way to describe it, which is that even morning show television, CNN, what they say is there's only way up because at best only 400,000 people are watching it in the morning and about less than 100,000 of them are in the key demographic, which is all that matters. I mean, think that's like, you know, a tenth or whatever of whatever happens here on breaking about how much they spend. Right. I mean, millions of dollars. Yeah. In promotion, in the set, in the quote unquote talent. I mean, the whole thing. All in, it's just mind-boggling mm-hmm. how much money they spend to achieve such incredibly poor results. It really is incredible. There's another article out about the way, the fact that the Sunday shows yeah. are dying. Yes. Too. They can't book Honestly, like high-level guests. Die. Nobody's watching. It's not. I mean, the Sunday shows used to be like this set the agenda and this is where the news was made and all of this, but it's just a totally different world. And you know, it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, okay, they can't get the big guess and they can't break the big news. And so there's even less reason for people to try to tune in and mm-hmm. watch. And it becomes a downward spiral. You see this playing out really across all of network news and cable news, frankly, where there's just, there's so many other options. It's so boring and predictable. They've gotten so many key moments so incredibly wrong. Um But yeah, if that's the strategy is just to kind of like pare back expenses and make it cheaper and try to hold on to the relatively small audiences that they have, I guess it's not the dumbest play in the world. Completely. My favorite term with regards to the Sunday shows, I think you taught me this, is the full Ginsburg. Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) Where named after the lawyer for Monica Lewinsky who went on all six Sunday shows back when people cared about such things. Yeah, I mean, I I can't even tell you it was on Fox News Sunday. Even five years ago, that used to be kind of a big deal. Now it's nothing. By the way, the person there that's being floated for uh, Don Lemon's replacement in the evening. Who is it? Casey Hunt. Oh, my God. God. (laughs) That'll be a fun one to celebrate. Sire, what are you looking at? I spend a lot of time here criticizing Joe Biden. Rightfully so, I think. It's always important, as we did with Trump or though with any politician. If they do something right or in the right direction, let's give them as much due attention and highlight how their new victory could spur another more important step that is vital for our country. Let's start with the good and important news. If you'll recall, the CHIPS Act, which spurred billions of dollars in new investment for the semiconductor industry here in the U.S., there were a few big and gaping problems. First amongst them was that while the bill itself was designed to protect U.S. competition for China in the critical chip sector, it didn't include enough provisions to actually stop Chinese money from infiltrating U.S. supply chains. It gets really complicated in the exact legal language, but it was enough that more than a few GOP senators who are pro-chips investment voted against the bill. Mostly, it seemed like standard-issue Washington corruption. But apparently, at the bare minimum, 
The Biden administration did take notice. After Congress, on behalf of Chinese interests, took out anti-Chinese protections from the bill, they drafted and have now signed an executive order mimicking what that law would have originally done, beefing up one of the most important and unknown parts of the U.S. government, the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, known in D.C. by the acronym CFIUS. CFIUS has a mandate from Congress to block U.S. foreign investment in companies that have a direct impact on national security. Think like a Raytheon or a Northrop Grumman. It's been limited in scope, and critics like myself for years have alleged CFIUS has been approving transactions clearly designed to undermine the U.S., but have bowed to corporate pressure. A new order directs CFIUS to consider whether any pending deal in U.S. markets involves the purchase of a business to access with two American-sensitive data— and specifically whether data has dual-use purposes for business could also be exploited by a foreign government. This new direction comes amid a flurry of new signs. The Biden administration, while far too slow to act in my opinion, may actually be considering either a total ban on TikTok or a forced sale of the Chinese company to one controlled by a U.S. corporation. The data provisions in CFIUS, in my opinion, should have been law years and years ago. And it also highlights how incompetent the Trump administration was. Remember when Trump said he would ban TikTok, but then he tried to do so in the dumbest way possible, resulting in the existence of the service and its continued domination in U.S. markets? Breaking points, remembers. Trump also failed on multiple occasions, thanks to certain of fail son's son-in-law, to beef up CFIUS and continued review of U.S. investments in China. His incompetence aside, the case for banning or spanning TikTok off has been quadrupled in years since that was considered. To review, the case is actually quite simple. In China, there is no such thing as private business. National security laws in the books, which have already been used against TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, make clear their data belongs to the Chinese state, not to them privately. They exist at the pleasure of the CCP and nothing more. Thus, when TikTok claims its data and its companies are separate from its overall Chinese operations, it's laughable. The basic truth is that one of the most used and most downloaded apps in the United States, especially amongst teenagers, is controlled directly by a foreign adversary. And the proof of this has been solid since 2019. But like I said, only grows day by day. In June, I covered that investigation that showed direct audio proof TikTok lied to the U.S. Congress about it has processes in place to keep the Beijing parent company without control over TikTok. The audio proved internally TikTok routinely acknowledges how in control Beijing is of their day-to-day operations. And a new profile, though, of TikTok's quote-unquote CEO also hammers home this point. TikTok hired several CEOs in the last several years with a chief mission of fooling U.S. regulators and consumers that it is not straight-up controlled by China. They first hired a longtime executive from the Walt Disney Company and since have hired Singaporean citizens Xiao Shi Chu. Now, the smokescreen was, well, he's Singaporean. It's cool. It's a U.S. ally. Yet, when you look under the hood, it's the exact same scenario. Chu, turns out, doesn't run the damn thing at TikTok. Decisions on everything from live streaming to shopping are made by Zhang Ziming this mysterious multi-billionaire founder of TikTok and ByteDance, its parent corporation. In fact, the most critical part of the company, TikTok's research and development team, as well as their growth and strategy team, report directly to Beijing, not to the CEO. They have no reporting lines whatsoever to the supposed CEO of the company. TikTok's shamelessness was best on display when their chief operating officer, who used to work at YouTube, testified before Congress on Thursday, where she would not definitively say that the company would cut off data and metadata flows to China. Just take a listen, her own words. Can you make the commitment, though, that I just asked you to make, that you will commit to cutting off all data and metadata flows to China, Chinese-based TikTok employees, ByteDance employees, or any other party located in China? 
What I can commit to is that our final agreement with the U.S. government will satisfy all national security concerns, yes. But you won't make a commitment to agree to what I have now twice asked you about? Sorry, given the confidentiality of CFIUS, I'm not able to talk specifically about that agreement. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about CFIUS. I'm asking what, whether share you'd make that commitment available. today. Will you make that commitment? I am committing to the, the what I've stated, which is we are working with the United States government on a resolve through the okay. CFIUS process in which we will continue to minimize that data as well as working with Oracle to protect that data in the United States. That is corporate speak for no, we won't commit to it. So it's actually simple. The company claims that despite being wholly owned outright and controlled by China, they are not controlled by China. When asked under oath if they'll stop sending them data, they're not going to say yes. It seems cut and dry. The longer we draw this out, the more it makes a mockery of our country and how weak we are that has taken us this long to even get the conversation to a place where it is being considered. I'm just going to end with this. A situation that's making it clear as day why TikTok either needs to go or needs to force sale now. In 2018, a Chinese news aggregator, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, known as Chow Cho, owned and operated by ByteDance, the same company that owns TikTok, was literally shut down overnight, despite being one of the largest in the entire country of China. The reason why? because the CCP said it was causing too much social disruption to their liking, and they just decided to nuke it overnight. In his bid to keep the job, Zhang Ziming, the current controller of TikTok, wrote in an open letter in Chinese, here's what he wrote, quote, the product has gone astray, posting content that goes against socialist core values. It's all on me. I accept all the punishment since it failed to direct public opinion in the right way. Do we need more proof? The guy literally said his content should promote CCP values and should, quote, direct public opinion in the way that they want it. If you think that isn't at play here in our country when the same guy literally owns TikTok, you're delusional. TikTok needs to go or be spun off. Biden administration needs to capitalize on the newfound momentum and just do all of us a favor to make us safer. I mean, I just think it's very basic, Crystal. And look, I mean, I've come around to the... And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Crystal, what do you take a look at? Well, guys, after a dramatic showdown last week, our nation's railroads were kept open by a last-minute deal that was struck between rail bosses and union leaders. That was in meetings that were led by the Biden administration. So President Biden released a triumphant statement saying that the deal was, quote, a big win for workers. Most of the media took the bait, declaring the crisis over. Hardly surprising, given that they were so late to this story and did such a terrible job of covering it. Parroting corporate talking points about the potential economic impact of a strike without giving any space to the workers' entirely legitimate concerns, while also ignoring how rail bosses were actually the ones holding the entire economy hostage to try to pressure Congress. It was crazy. After the tentative agreement was negotiated, Biden himself went on 60 Minutes, was thrown a totally softball question, and all but declared mission accomplished. Mr. President, you have just averted a nationwide railroad strike that would have been crippling to the economy. How did you do that? And what were those last hours like in the negotiations? Well, look, we brought business and labor together. One of the things that happens in negotiations, particularly if they've been elongated like these have, is people say and do things where they, their pride gets engaged as well. And it's awful hard to back off of some of these things. So what we did was just say, look, let's take a look. Let's take a look at what's happening. 
you have a good deal being made for labor. They're, their, their income is going to go up 24% over the next five years. They've worked out the, the health care piece. They've worked out days off. They both sat down, in my view, and I were in the office today saying, well, we finally figured out this is fair on both sides. And it took that time to focus. And, and the alternative was just not thinkable. What do you mean? If, in fact, they had gone on strike, the supply chains in this country would have come to a screeching halt we would have seen a real economic crisis. But since that victory lap, something strange has happened. The details of that deal have remained hidden. We still don't know what exactly is in that tentative agreement. And more importantly, the rail workers who will ultimately ratify or reject this tentative agreement, they still don't have the details. Now, some things have been reported by the press, but workers have far from a complete picture. Why does that matter? Well, Jonah Furman put it well. He wrote, The thing is, negotiations rely to some extent on momentum. Members were extremely fired up. They had picket teams organized. They felt confident in their demands and knew what they were holding out for. Calling it off without anything to discuss is like icing the kicker. So we're being told by the Biden administration, backed up by much of the media, that this is a good deal. But workers, they have some severe doubts. What's more, the reaction to the details we do have has been overwhelmingly negative. As one example, workers had asked for 15 paid days off. This agreement reportedly only includes one. Details on health care and unpaid time off, those remain murky. A locomotive engineer told The Post, quote, It's impossible right now to make heads or tails of what this agreement means, and it's disgraceful how opaque it is. Even the best-case scenario does not look like a massive victory for labor, but the devil is in the details. The worst-case scenario could be quite awful. Another worker posted on Facebook, quote, Why is our union posting this like this is some kind of game-changing deal? One day is laughable. We need to strike. Meanwhile, workers on Twitter shared stories about being penalized for taking time off to witness the birth of their child or for taking care of their sick child or for the crime of themselves being sick. These issues are not just issues for the workers, by the way. They are safety issues with potential real-life consequences. One worker wrote about how she was, quote, forced to take a non-compensated day because there is no way I can drive a 15,000-foot, 12,000-ton train 256 miles safely while having a fever and puking my guts up seems reasonable. Bottom line, while much of the media and political class has already forgotten about these workers and their lives, the fight is far from over. And after whatever the current cooling off period is, we might be right back in the same place, facing down a deadline with rail bosses willing to commit corporate terrorism and risk the entire economy in order to get their way. We will certainly not stop covering it here. But, you know, I can't help but think about the big picture here as well and the utter insanity of having such a critical piece of national infrastructure vital for everyone, from commuters to farmers to businesses, subject to the whims of a few rich executives. Remember, not only do these companies not care about their workers, they also don't care about the supply chain, about farmers getting their crops to market, about water treatment facilities getting the chemicals they need, about commuters getting to work who depend on the freight rail lines. They care about profit. That's why they've given themselves massive handouts and stock buybacks and dividends rather than investing in an adequate workforce. That's why they're perfectly willing to threaten the entire nation with economic calamity just to keep from having to treat their workers with basic decency. Now, to us, such a thing might be unimaginable, the height of unchecked greed and immorality. But to them, it's just business as usual. A veteran train dispatcher who penned an op-ed for our friends over at The Real News implored Americans to consider that big picture. He wrote... I can understand why people around the country are concerned about the calamitous impact a national rail strike or rail lockout could have on the economy and an already creaking supply chain. 
What I hope people understand in return is that railroad workers are the ones fighting to save what is left of the supply chain from the same corporate greed that has upended the nation's freight rail industry. If you stand with us, we can win. Sounds like a pretty good plan to me. Step one, continue to stand with these workers who are still very much in this fight. Step two, reform this monstrous system so these railroad bosses can never hold the nation hostage to protect their own cruelty again. Um, Sagar, it was pretty remarkable. You saw the way that question. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. No guest today. We wanted to talk and spend some time uh, talking about Atlanta. So thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. Uh, as we said, we've got the CounterPoints discount, discount going on right now. We gave you a little taste of what it was like in Atlanta if you want to come and join us in Chicago if you're in the Midwest. It was a hell of a lot of fun, and we learned a lot of lessons. So otherwise, we will see you all on Tuesday. Love you all. See you tomorrow. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.